Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. We've got a little different show for you today. Earlier this week, I sat down with Dan Albert, car critic at N Plus One Magazine, automotive historian, and author of the recent book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile, Past, Present, and Driverless. We talked about how the automobile changed America from helping drive the development of consumer debt culture to its role in pushing pedestrians and cyclists off city streets. We discussed the electric vehicle company who pioneered a mobility as a service, battery swapping, electric vehicle business model more than a century before the onset of Uber and Lyft. And we consider how the infrastructure built to sustain the car has shaped the development of autonomous vehicles. I had a great time picking Dan's brain about the past and future of automobiles, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Okay, today I'm joined by Dan Albert. Dan Albert writes about cars and culture for N Plus One magazine and is the author of a new book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile Past, Present, and Driverless. Dan Albert, welcome to Industry Focus. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. Happy to have you here. Uh, really enjoyed reading your book. I think one of the biggest things I learned from the book is how, th- when the automobile came onto the scene, how it changed American societies. Before we dive in into the automobile and how it's evolved over time, can you kind of just give us a picture of what the world looked like when the automobile came onto the stage? Uh, what was the world like at the turn of the century? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things to understand. One is most people in the United States lived outside cities, lived in rural places, were farmers, were small town doctors or whatever it might be. Uh, so that was uh, – uh, people were out there. They had some wealth, but they didn't have the kind of wealth you needed to buy automobiles. So the automobile really came into the city first. So what did the city look like around 1890? Well, uh, that too had changed. Uh, even up till 1850, 1860, the city was formed around the idea of walking. You really even even the uh, transportation options that you had, such as uh, a horse omnibus, so this kind of big wagon pulled around by a horse, give them a nickel, you can get a ride, uh, didn't move much faster than walking. So you're talking about something a couple of miles square. Industrialization, massive immigration, uh, particularly of uh, people who were from uh, southern and eastern Europe, who were Catholics, who were Jews, who were not the same kind of immigrants that there had been earlier. And so you got a lot of conflict and, and uh, 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 disagreement, I'll just call it, uh, uh, congestion and so forth happening. Uh, electrification of the streetcar is very important, comes uh, 1870s, 1880s, and that begins to spread the city out. Uh, you begin to get streetcar suburbs, right? So the, the streetcar moves faster, it moves on rails, bigger, uh, able to carry more people. And it's that city that the automobile enters. It's a city that has become very congested, very dense, uh, but is beginning to spread out into the metropolis. Right. And when the car came on the scene, you could say there were some of the same concerns today when it comes to the predominant transportation of the time being the horse, being at the time a very dirty vehicle. If you look at uh, some of the newspapers from the time, the Times of London said in 50 years, every street in London is going to be buried under nine feet of manure. Today, you might say the same thing about climate change and and putting uh, the city underwater. What, with the car coming onto the scene what opportunities did it open up for people that didn't exist before? And was it at the time seen as something that would be cleaner than the horse? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was progressive. It was cleaner. And as you say, you know, this was not just manure. This was disease spreading. Uh, you also had horse stables, which if you think about it, are full of hay made of wood and they were dangerous and they were smelly. So if you're living next door to a horse uh, stable, you might be happier with a garage. 
Uh, the other thing is you begin to develop sort of the uh, ASPCA uh, mentality. In other words, you begin to think of horses not as machines as they had been for a very long time. But some people are beginning to say, wait a minute, we need to treat these as – creatures as animals and we need to treat them humanely. And uh, one of the earliest uh, automobiles is a guy named Dudgeon and he starts running a service out to Long Island and he says specifically, I am doing this because of the misery of horses. I want to stop abusing horses. So that's uh, the world it comes into. It's progressive. Uh, they're noisy, they're smelly, they're driving too fast, but there were also a lot of electric cars and steamers that did not have a lot of those uh, drawbacks. Um, but yeah, very much progressive, cleaner, in a lot of ways safer, by the way, than, than a horse-drawn uh, carriage. Horses kick people in the head. It's that simple. Yeah, you talk about uh, you know at the early days of the car before the internal combustion engine came onto the scene, the vehicle being very dominated by steam and electric cars. And the, the most interesting anecdote from your book is the, you know the electric vehicle company, which at the time rose to become one of the largest auto manufacturers in the country, had a shared mobility battery swapping uh, business model. You know, can you give us an overview of what the electric vehicle company was and how it compares to some of the businesses we're seeing emerge today. Uh, I can. You're, you're not going to believe me because the parallel is so similar. So this is a company that starts out um, from a, a guy who has a, an electric car. And these people come in, um, among them uh, Albert Pope, who is the largest uh, bicycle manufacturer in the country. And they start to look at how can we monetize uh, electric vehicles. Electric vehicles were relatively expensive, um, not like the uh, luxury vehicles coming over from Europe, but you know, com comparable to a gasoline vehicle, a little more expensive. So selling them outright to a mass market wasn't on the table. But they were excellent in the city, excellent for wealthy women, socialites, uh, and terrific as taxi cabs. So what happened? The electric vehicle company forms, a lot of different players come together, and they are going to provide mobility as a service. You can rent one, you can buy one if you want, but you can also basically pay by the mile, take it like a, a taxi cab. They made sure they had lots of these machines on the road. They made sure they stayed on the road. And you mentioned battery swapping, and that's so important because even now, you know, a half hour to sit and, and recharge is a problem on a road trip. So uh, they really had that dialed in. And in fact, uh, the business was successful. It was profitable. What happened to it? How did it die? Uh, they essentially, again, the parallels are interesting, overexpanded. They went from saying we're going to be in New York to saying we're going to have one in Philadelphia and Chicago and Boston and they began to open up these branch offices. And uh, they – again, they overextended. They took on some loans. Two things are interesting about that. One is uh, they became a monopoly and they had to be a monopoly. Right, Because it didn't work if you had 10 different companies running cabs just like with Uber and Lyft today. If there were 10 different companies, uh, the, the economics don't work out. Monopolies were a bad thing in those days. Uh, 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 Teddy Roosevelt came in, the trust buster. Um, but they also were attacked by a very influential journalist who ran something called the Horseless Age and he hated them and he called them the lead cab trust. His 
It was partly he did not like electrics. He liked gasoline because he thought electrics were going nowhere. Um, but it was also this problem of the trust. So he referred to them as the lead cab trust. Finally, though, they got caught. And they got caught because they secured a loan uh, fraudulently. And that sent their stock, I think it was something like $30 down to, to pennies, 30 cents or whatever. And that was the end of the electric vehicle company. And some of the concerns why electrics maybe didn't take over relative to an internal combustion engine are the same as what we'd seen today in that you know range anxiety and you know the but one of the issues that I think was really pulled through in your book is the idea that not only do gasoline cars have a longer range but gasoline cars can go faster and stroke that part of the automotive need for people when we look at how safety has evolved for people, how have we balanced safety and then that need for risk uh, when it comes to that part of how we enjoy uh, operating cars and, and that part of you know being a car owner? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's it's speed. Although it's interesting, at, at one point, electric vehicles have the world land speed record, but it's very short distance. So in terms of maintaining speed, it's the gasoline car. The dangers are are pretty apparent because you can feel viscerally and hear the explosive energy going on in that engine. And, you know, you might think of that kind of greasy machinery, those thrusting pistons that, that exhaust the oil um, as, as a negative. But for a lot of, uh, of the early adopters of the automobile, that was kind of what they wanted. They wanted something dangerous and exciting. Um, the Efforts at automobile safety were very early on, okay, the car's perfectly safe, it's bad drivers. And particularly, uh, they focused on manners, right? Drivers with bad manners that are rude, uh, which is kind of like most drivers today, I would think. Um, but that was the first effort to try to, you know, rein in the drivers. And this is when they're wealthy gentlemen and, you know, they say in the in the highfalutin newspapers and magazines, come on, gentlemen, you need to behave. The other problem, though, was you also had chauffeurs. And chauffeurs were working class. Uh, they would do things like, you know, take the boss's car out when he didn't notice and go go joyriding, show off to his girl or what have you. Uh, so that was a huge um, a draw. And, and I don't think there's anything special about that with the automobile, horse racing, bicycle racing in particular. That thrill and danger was uh, uh, very much a part of a, a positive element of the early gasoline automobile. And you touched on how safety has evolved over time, how you know the orientation we have towards safety as a society. At first, it started out with the drivers are bad. We need to educate our drivers. And you saw um, uh, driver's education and those sorts of programs come on board. And then uh, as Ralph Nader and, and those folks came on the scene in the 60s and 70s, you've seen uh, a shift to where the car was an unsafe, you know, unsafe at any speed. The vehicle itself is defective. Today, we are seeing as autonomy and these things have emerged is the idea that the car should avoid accidents in the first place. It's not that the driver is poor and that gets into the accidents or that the car is unsafe when it, uh, when it does crash. It's that we're developing technologies that will prevent crashes from occurring in the first place. Uh, as you see these technologies start to come on to the scene, how do you expect safety and the way we think about it from the perspective of the automobile to change going forward? Uh, it's a very interesting question. I, I just quickly maybe digress a little bit, but 
as those uh, safety devices came in, things like seat belts and softer interiors, there was a complaint from kind of the car and driver editors and whatnot saying, well, you know, really you want to be able to avoid an accident. And the problem is these big American cars don't handle very well. So buy yourself a, a BMW or something that, you know, will, will be able to avoid the accident. Uh, th that doesn't work. Just like driver training doesn't work. We know that driver education doesn't work. Um, so that effort to kind of engineer a better human driver has been very uh, unsuccessful overall. Um, the real question to me is what we've ended up with now is really an automotive womb, right? The, the car is so soft and so uh, uh, safe in a lot of ways. It's kind of very hard to kill yourself in a car even though it's a major cause of death uh, to the point where um, roof pillars are very thick. So if you notice, uh, it's kind of hard to see like our, our minivan or other other bigger vehicles, it's kind of hard to see past those posts. If you go back to the 1950s, you know, it was a strip of chrome. Now, the roof got crushed in if you rolled over. It doesn't happen anymore, so it's a huge thing. But we're becoming more and more insulated, isolated from the experience of driving and driving. And, and uh, uh, I think that is in a way almost, I don't know, want softening us up for um, the prospect of the driverless car. Now, when you look at the you know, concept cars for driverless cars, they're not padded on the inside, right? They're uh, office spaces, sliding chairs. And you know, this is a, car, a concept car. But I do think that is the hope and that the expectation is vehicles will become completely different. We can rethink the interior. One area I wanted to talk about is so the car itself as a technology you know, evolved over time, Henry Ford and others helped that car get in the hands of all Americans. But one way that the car was really able to flourish uh, was through the construction of highways, things like the interstate, through cooperation between the auto industry and the government to create this infrastructure uh, for the car to thrive. How did that relationship come about and how did it kind of grow out uh, through the interstate program in the 1950s? How was that the kind of final flourishing of the relationship between the auto industry and the government? Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, the one thing I'll say to start is, you know, a lot of people say, well, the car companies were foisted upon us by the government. And the reality is we adopted the car as a nation long before the government got involved. But uh, beginning in the 1930s, the government began to think about um, – Cities is a problem. They were congested. They were slums in the words of planners. Uh, also, I think of it in terms of the flow of capital, right? Trying to weave a market together, trying to make it more flexible, all the things we talk about now. And the highways were going to do that. And, and again, we, you know, the, the highways were built in the 50s, started in the 50s, but really they're a product intellectually, if you will, or philosophically, ideologically of the 1930s. And so you have to think about the politics of that period, which is very um, statist. The government will step in and fix the economy and fix the environment and uh, so forth. Um, but once that gets going in the 1950s, uh, the government, federal government puts up 90 percent of the money. The states put up 10 percent of the money. It comes from gas taxes for the most part. Um, but it is allocated by the federal government and there are all kinds of rules. And the result is the largest public works project 
in American history. So I always think about, you know, the freedom of the open road, okay, but it's also pure and simple uh, government uh, uh, industrial policy, if you will. And then the last thing I always think about is, you know, you talk about the freedom of the highway, and that's true, you can go far, but you can't get off where you want, you can't get on where you want, it's much more like a rail system where there are stations and you get off at the stations and uh, uh, it works that way. Yeah, in many ways, uh, it's it's very similar to a railway, as you've as you've said. Um, one thing I found interesting reading your book is if you look at the turn of the century before the automobile came onto the scene, uh, you had a city that was predominantly populated by people, uh, pedestrians. You had some bicycles on the road, uh, and you had uh, public transit in the form of streetcar and those sorts of things. Which, if you look at the world that a lot of the biggest micromobility advocates today. That's the world that they would they would hope that we would live in: fewer cars, more people. Uh, but as you saw the car evolve uh, and become more and more a significant part of society, some of those uh, modes of transportation have been pushed out. As we see more voices kind of pushing for a return to that system, given as as fully committed as we've become to the automobile today, how do you handicap the opportunity we have to build that type of micromobility, pedestrian-focused society? Uh, I mean, I'll start by saying, you know, uh, 100% behind that. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for automobiles to be in cities. Uh, It happened because of the interest behind it. And they were not, you know, the auto companies, they were, for example, downtown merchants that were used to getting what they called the carriage trade before the automobile, wealthy people. Well, they wanted to make sure wealthy people came downtown. Um, So you get street widening, you get all kinds of changes in the infrastructure to support uh, the automobile. The ideas that were presented at the time for solving that problem uh, was separate things vertically. Down the bottom, you have your subway, rapid transit, surface streets, above that walkways. It's very modernist when you look at the old uh, pictures. Um, There are neighborhoods in Japan, I was in Tokyo, that are very much like that and they're wonderful. Um, So they work. but, But the overarching idea is separate modes of travel. So you talk about streetcars, you know, mass transit, cable cars, you also had horse and wagon, you had plenty of people and you had bicycles. The the theory became that mix was really the problem and we need to get people off the streets and make the streets uh, for cars. Um, The one thing didn't happen. In other words, we didn't separate people by giving them a nice place to walk. We didn't separate bicycles, right? So my hope would be, and it's going to take a commitment, and we're, we're seeing this, for example, if I could stop for a second and say, in, in New York City, there has been a spike of bicycle pedestrian deaths. Uh, people are dying at the hands of drivers, right, or at automobiles. Um, why is that happening? Because there's no safe place to bike. A bike lane painted you know, green or with a white stripe is not safe. Bicycles need infrastructure. If you go to the Netherlands or, or other places, what you see is a city designed around bicycle infrastructure and cars are demoted. So cars can come in, but they, they are uh, second-class citizens compared to the bicycle. I, th- I am very hopeful over time that that happens. I think clearly there are progressives in the industry, uh, uh, the transportation industry, and, and you know, 
young people are keen to this, whether it's because of climate change or a desire for urban living. Uh, so I, I expect those things to happen. It's a question of how long. Those things take a long time. Yeah, when you talk about infrastructure, you know, we talked about how uh, the interstate and the building of highways really allowed breathing space for the car uh, to come to the fore. As we see autonomy and real conversations around how we are going to shift uh, our mobility infrastructure, or the way we get around, there hasn't been as much talk about close collaboration between governments and industry uh, to enable these new technologies. Why do you think? things have changed uh, versus you know, when the car was developing as a technology where it was you know, assumed there would be some kind of involvement between the government and industry uh, to allow the technology to thrive versus today, you've, I think you described it as an Ayn Randian type philosophy when it comes to autonomy. What is the barrier to real investment in infrastructure and collaboration between government and, and industry to make these technologies happen? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, I would point to the big picture things like where we are culturally and in our politics. But I will say that if you go back to the 1950s when systems were first tested and in fact in the 1990s when the federal government uh, tested systems, uh, they, were work uh, they worked, they were designed and, and developed in a combination between government and industry. Uh, industry, even General Motors famously built uh, – hands off, feed off, driverless vehicles that worked with a particular kind of road and it was essentially a wire down the road. They uh, put sensors on existing, you know, you can see a 58 Chevy, uh, an Impala I think it is, driving in front of another one, nobody at the wheel and they're platooning and they're working. Um, the reasons for those uh, vehicles were to make better use of existing roads. And this is particularly true in the 1990s. Um, the uh, interstate highways funding was done. Basically, the interstates were built. And uh, government was looking for a way to maximize the use of those existing roadways. The way to do it, squeeze more cars in together. Also, let the driver relax. And you, there's a wonderful video, you know, government video you can see online of, uh, you know, parade of Buicks going down a, a highway in, I think, San Diego. People waving their hands, reading the newspaper. So you get all of the things we talk about now with driverless cars, greater safety, uh, relaxing trip where you don't have to pay attention. Um, but the purpose, the goal behind it was maximizing the use of the existing infrastructure. What happened was uh, we want to build more highways anyway. And you can get into was that the highway builders that got captured the government or whatever. Um, today, I think there's two things going on. And, and um, Lewandowski, who was a famous uh, driverless car engineer at uh, uh, Google and then Uber and now he's uh, not anywhere, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, said – Somewhat famously, uh, you know, why would we put a wire in the road? And that's how these systems work. You kind of sniff out a wire in the road. Why would we put a wire in the road? We can't even seem to fix the potholes, right? So in a lot of ways for him and for other people in that vein, uh, infrastructure – fixing infrastructure is a bad thing. It's not, it's not what they want. 
Um, also, if we look at the origins of that technology, the current technology, uh, it comes out of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Association, and the plan was to have vehicles that could operate in a war zone. Well, you're not going to go into Iraq and put, you know, things in the road. Things in the road blow up in Iraq, right? Uh, so that was the original um, money behind the technology. But the biggest difference now is there's no money to be made putting sensors on lights and uh, uh, you know sniffers on the road because they're not very expensive. There's not a whole lot of reason to, to, for people to pay more for them. And also selling cars to people is not a very good business anymore. Ah, but on the other hand, Uber, right? 120 billion down to 68 billion, but a huge valuation for a company that loses money. If they could develop a driverless car, uh, they would perhaps get to profitability. So that's what they're looking for. And again, by the same token, very hard to make money selling cars. Um, General Motors is looking at uh, autonomous cars. Waymo is looking at autonomous cars because that's a subscription model. Pay by the mile, keep keep paying. We, we own the cars. Yeah. Uh, the follow-up question there. As yeah. we see – the shifting to more of the ride-sharing, car-sharing, Uber technology, and we see the, the the way we go about owning transportation change from owning a car, making a you know multi tens of thousand dollar purchase, to uh, you know a ride-share pay uh, you know per per transit. How do you see our relationship with the car changing? And do you see that shift actually taking place? Us moving away from individual ownership of cars more toward a, a sharing. Economy. Do you think that's a realistic vision of the future? Uh, it, I mean, it's certainly. I, I like to say I don't predict the future. I predict the past. I'm a historian, but uh, I will say um, there are a lot of reasons people talk about peak car now. That we've we've reached the peak of of car purchases, and it's it's going to go away. Uh, two things to think about. One is, of course, we've reached the peak of car ownership. There are more cars than there are licensed drivers in this country. And you have to stop and think about that. That means even if we all drove all the time, there'd still be cars sitting around parked. Um, I think the other thing, very practical thing you have to think about is young people uh, who have college debt, who are struggling to find work that uh, pays as well as maybe it did in the past, um, find it hard to – purchase a car. I think also um, cars have become more soporific. It's really hard to get excited about uh, a lot of these cars unless you're looking at a real luxury car or a, a high-end car. Um, so I do think there is this transition. And I do think there's a lot to say about uh, particularly when you're traveling or uh, when you're going into a city where you, you parking, as you say, 50 bucks uh, an hour or whatever. Um, uh, that that mobility as a service uh, makes sense, yeah. So I, d I do see that coming on. And, and the last thing I'll say is that's not a good thing. What we're seeing in places like New York and others is more congestion, pulling people off of mass transit, inducing travel. That's one of the most interesting findings. About 11% of trips, people say, oh, I wouldn't have taken that if I couldn't have gotten a, a Uber or a Lyft to do it. Now, one, one other point you mentioned about uh, 
people aren't very excited about the new cars coming out today. I think one area where folks are really excited is, is a company like Tesla. Uh, these new car companies coming on to the scene. Um, you talk about in the book the the real trouble that independent car companies uh, have had to succeed against the the big three U.S. auto manufacturers. Why have independent auto companies struggled so much uh, in the U.S. since the auto company and since the auto industry has matured? So auto companies, independents have have struggled to catch up with the oligopoly. Uh, General Motors owned fifty percent of the uh, industry. Ford was next. Chrysler was next. Uh, the problem was access to capital and manufacturing scale. The way you make money today, the way you profit today as an automaker, is to produce 10 million cars a year. If you're not doing that, it's very difficult. Also, you need to produce a lot of different models all on one platform. That is a very hard thing for a new company coming in to do. So it has a lot to do with access to capital and manufacturing scale. Manufacturing scale is so important. Uh, the strange thing that's happening now is we have uh, Tesla that may or may not become a major company. Now, I mean, there have been small companies started. Uh, Koenigsegg is one of my favorite, you know, a $3 million car. So you can start a car company, but you can't start a mainstream mass-producing car company, or so it would seem. Uh, Tesla has been able to access billions and billions in capital from people who uh, desire to sign on to the, the dream and the hope that this company is going to really change the world and is going to build a great car. And by all accounts, they do build a great car. They don't yet make money. It remains to be seen whether they will and whether they will go from being what is really a niche company to uh, a mainstream automaker. And we don't know. Sure. Part of that, uh, when it comes to the emergence of these new companies, you have Tesla, you have Rivian as another one, is the idea that the, the automotive industry is being reshaped by this transition to electric vehicles. You know, we, we talked about earlier how the electric vehicle company, the electric vehicles have been around since, you know, before the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, with EVs emerging onto the market, uh, do you see this as, as the start of a, a meaningful shift uh, in the automotive industry away from the internal combustion engine towards a 100% EV future long term or why or why not? Uh, I certainly do. Uh, I certainly, I, I don't know, 100%, you know, 95%, whatever it is. The uh, uh, Two things to keep in mind. These things take time. If we're just going to do it on a market-based situation, even with a, you know, benefit for the purchase, um, we sell about 16, 17 million cars a year. There are 240 million cars in the country. So, and and about a third of, uh, I'm sorry, about 20% of vehicles are over 18 years old. So, for the entire fleet of automobiles to turn over, to become new, um, that has been growing and growing. We're now up to the average car being 12 years old. That said, uh, certainly governments outside of the United States are pushing hard for EVs. And then as that happens, the market does change. and In fact, it goes together with driverless cars. EVs are less complicated, uh, more reliable, uh, the, you know, to sort out a lot of things with the batteries. But in terms of an electric motor, it'll run forever. Uh, uh, Jay, Jay Leno, who's a great car collector, has a Detroit Electric that runs on the original flooded, wet, lead cells. You know, so a 100-year-old battery is still working in the vehicle. Uh, still working. So uh, it, it's a more reliable technology. So now here I am, I'm General Motors, and I want to deploy a fleet of vehicles. 
I'm not going to deploy a fleet of old-style Chevys. I have to change the oil. I have to keep up with them. I'm going to deploy a fleet of electric vehicles, more efficient, uh, cost me less in, in uh, energy or in gas, if you will. Uh, so once the vehicle becomes something other than a consumer product, you know, a chrome-covered Buick, once it becomes something that I don't, I might care what color Uber I get into, but that's about it, right? Uh, then, by all means, electricity makes more sense, and those two things go together, and I do see that happening. And do you expect, you know, again, we've seen new car companies come onto the onto the scene with the expectation they may take meaningful market share. Do you expect, or is there any reason why existing major automakers, Toyota, GM, Honda, you know, uh, Volkswagen, why they would have issues adopting the EV technology and, con- you know, continuing into this new paradigm as the technology changes? Uh, yes and no. I think um, one thing to keep in mind is that building cars is a ca- very capital-intensive, very low-margin business. And once you build a factory, you have to amortize the cost of that factory. So the idea of switching from the factories they have now, kind of crossing that valley uh, and getting to the other side is going to be very difficult for them. That said, I mean, they're smart people. Um, they, they know how to transition. There are a lot of elements about electric vehicles that are the same uh, as, as uh, gasoline vehicles. If you look, for example, at the Jaguar electric vehicles, which are not going to be you know, a mass market or even sell as many as gasoline Jaguars, the insides are gorgeous. I mean, the quality of the material, the quality of the fit and finish is like a Jaguar. It's not like a Tesla. So um, they, they certainly do have a capacity for that. Uh, and, and again, all these things kind of go together. If you don't care much about all that stuff, the fit and, and finish or the you know leather seats, um, a Tesla makes sense. It's got a big screen. Maybe you like that. Um, but no, I don't see any anything that would stop them and – they have so much capital that, for example, General Motors bought cruise automation for a billion dollars. A lot of that was in stock. That's chump change, right? So it, it, there's no reason they can't do what uh, other large companies do, what we see Google and Facebook do, just buy up the new guys. Now, how that all plays out in a business sense, uh, I don't know. And if I could, just one other thing. Uh, the Chinese are pushing really hard for electric cars. Their cities are choked, um, but mostly they don't have any oil. We produce a lot of oil in the United States. They don't. And they want to overleap the gasoline car. They want to get on the cutting edge because their plan is to export everywhere. They have a huge amount of overcapacity. I think they have the capacity to build about 40 million cars a year. They sell about 30 million cars a year. So they can start perfecting electric vehicles and selling them across the globe. They have a very good business plan, if you will. Sure. I mean, if you look at some of the, you know, access to cobalt and the and lithium and the, the really important metals, you've really seen China may take a really purposeful position in, the, in those places, which are going to be very important um, as things start to scale up. One thing we talked about, and I don't think we've touched on very much, is the idea of the car as the consumer product. We've talked about how people like the car for its speed that it has, um, but how did how has the car evolved as a consumer product over time? You know, the, the famous Henry Ford line, you know, it comes in every color except as long as it's black yeah. to today where there are, you know, a model and color for every single 
uh, individual. How has the car evolved over time to become more personal to individuals? Yeah, it's a very good question because it was very consciously done. So, yeah, Ford said that. It was funny. When he said that, uh, you could actually buy a Ford in different colors. The problem was uh, colored paint took a long time to dry in the order of weeks. Uh, black paint, for different reasons, um, dried in a day. So it was a production issue. It was a, a inventory management issue. And all of the vehicles came in black except for if you bought a very fancy vehicle and also the colored paints didn't last. His idea was you're going to buy a Henry Ford Model T and you're going to own it and that's the last car you'll ever need to buy. And that worked for a while and it's in a way a surprisingly short amount of time. It was 1909 was the first full year of production. By 1925 certainly uh, production had fallen or, or sales had fallen off the cliff. And by 27, he stopped making them. The reason, General Motors under Alfred Sloan, most important uh, CEO maybe in American history, uh, got together with uh, DuPont and they came up with a new paint. It was called Duco. Wow, colors. Blue, uh, uh, red over tan. You could get, you know, two tones. Um, and these came out in, in about, I think about 27. Actually, a little earlier was the first ones. Um, and people ate it up. So his idea was let's stop selling cars because there's plenty of used cars. We're not selling transportation. We're selling new. And that was the beginning of planned obsolescence. And he said quite clearly, I want people to come to the showroom and see this year's car and have them feel like their two-year-old car is perfectly serviceable, is old, and they need something new. It's fashion, right? Um, also, he had this idea of laddering, a car for every purse and purpose. In other words, you start with a Chevrolet. If you're lucky, you move up to uh, an Oldsmobile and then a Buick. And then if you really get into the, the C-suite, you know, if you become an executive, then you can get a Cadillac and you've, re you've really arrived. And so those two things, that aspiration to have a better and better and more luxurious car, which signaled your position in the society – and also to keep up and to always have a new car, um, I think is important. And it's funny. It's funny nowadays. Uh, people lease cars; they hold them for three years and they turn them in. So, in a lot of ways, that even though the cars last much longer, people still do that. Right, and we saw the way people purchase things change over time. The idea of debt financed purchases really begins with the car. Can you touch on that a little bit about how the car? drove the beginning of some of the consumer debt culture that we have today, how that shaped in the early days of the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's fascinating to me because very early on, banks were like, yeah, we won't give you a loan. This is a fad or whatever. Uh, so uh, Willis, who built the Jeep, um, was a very big automaker in the teens, uh, started uh, uh, kind of an in-house bank, right, a lending arm. General Motors did the same. Uh, uh, Sloan was involved with Willis and then he brought it to General Motors, the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, um, which would give loans. And this created ultimately, because there was a saturation in the 1920s, uh, a bubble. Because, you know, you would get just like we've seen with the housing, right? Easier and easier credit, uh, liar loans, whatever it was. And a lot of the reason, one of the major reasons for the collapse of the economy in the 1930s was that bubble burst. 
So cars are repossessed, they're going on the market, they're cheaper and so forth. Um, Henry Ford, interestingly, was always against debt. He looked at bankers as you know Shylocks uh, taking a pound of flesh. Uh, he always did things out of uh, uh, capital, free cash. Um, so it was interesting when in the 1920s, Ford Motor Company also got into the bank business. And by the end, you know, it was crazy. It was only these, you know, kind of Enron style farces of money moving all around. Um, but people became quite comfortable with that. People became comfortable with debt. And debt is a, a very American thing. You build equity in a home through debt and so forth. Uh, so, so that really began. Uh, you know, nowadays we've gone through it. it. Things seem okay now in terms of car loans, but there was a very scary time when car loans, and just as it was in the 1920s, went out from oh, you can get a loan for three years with this much down to five years with with less down to eight years, and now we even have 12-year car loans. And you really have to wonder what happens when you get to say eight years and you want to trade that in and that's you know that vehicle's already worthless um, it's a it's a difficult and you still owe money on the loan I should say uh, so again uh, consumer society really started big time with the car it was the king of consumer products and also as you say uh, debt financing uh, debt purchases purchasing on time as it used to be called uh, became big with the car as we see the role of the car change and folks continue uh, to push back, you know, getting their driver's license, that's kind of a, a secular sacrament if you want to put it that way. The rite of passage folks have getting your first car, graduating from high school. It, as autonomy comes to the fore and you know, our role as drivers shifts, what do we lose as a society as we get rid of that part of, of being an American? Yeah, well, being an American, I think is is very important. One of the I take those two elements uh, separately. So just in terms of being an American, I think we see that um, you know General Motors gone from the biggest car uh, company in the world and the most profitable to bankrupt, and so that really does change our relationship with the automobile in terms of you know American pride. Um, but also, the top three selling vehicles in the United States are pickup trucks, right? So Ford has the number one, GM, and then uh, Fiat Chrysler. Uh, that tells me that um, people still very much care about a vehicle that is uniquely American. There is nowhere else in the world where a large country is buying more pickups than uh, sedans. Right, it's a ridiculous vehicle. Uh, I just watched uh, Jim Gaffigan. You know, the, these pickups drive around with nothing in the trunk and there's nothing in the bed. Uh, the beds are pristine. He said it's like carrying around an empty suitcase because an empty suitcase doesn't say, "Oh, I'm going somewhere." It says, "I'm the kind of guy who could go somewhere." The other element of that, in terms of getting a license later, right, um, and uh, what you lose when you stop driving. To me, the most interesting thing about that is, you know, we live in a society, and I watch it with my kids, uh, where you know, constant social media, which is really social marketing, isn't it? And uh, constant engagement with purchasing and so forth. I always think, um, you know, I, I I have a thought, I pick up my phone, and the next thing I know, an Amazon box is there, right? It's so frictionless. 
uh, consumption is so frictionless now. It just happens almost as soon as you think about it. When you're in the car, certainly a car that's not self-driving, you're not able to do that. You're also not really able to work. Maybe you have the radio on. Maybe you know you take a phone call, um, but you're not working. So you're not consuming. You're not working. It's this interstitial space. It's a third place, and it's a it's a job driving that occupies your mind. You have to pay attention to it. You can do other things, but it is in a sense a meditative state. Now, could we replace that and you know not spew carbon uh, in the air? Absolutely, and that would be great. But I do think it is one of the few places where that happens anymore. And all we're going to see with a driverless car is all of that social marketing and all of that work and labor invade the last refuge. Right. I mean, you, you talk about early on in the book how when the car first came on the scene, it was a vehicle that took folks to the national parks. You got folks outside. You'd go out for a yeah. picnic, do all those sorts of things. Uh, as we see the rise of autonomy, there, there's a lot of folks who would say, you know, it goes from a third place to a third screen, right? You've got your computer at home. You've got your TV at work. And you've got that screen in the car. When you look at, I guess, the shifting role that the car has played from something that will take you out into the country to something that really takes you from screen to screen, has that was there a clear shift there, or is this just as society has evolved over time, this is just where we've 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 ended up? I certainly I certainly think that there is a development that begins really with GPS and the in-car uh, navigation, and certainly as it spreads where you really do lose that sort of scene out the window. And especially, you lose getting lost. You're not going anywhere new. Uh, I like to say, you know, a map is something you pour over and consider and plan on. Uh, GPS, you, you obey, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, people have studied this. You know, we, we all have, and this was studies with rats, like if you imagine a rat maze, right? The rat has a, an image, a sort of bird's eye view of that maze or that landscape and also has that, oh, turn left here, turn right there, turn left there, oh, find the cheese. Those two maps uh, need to exist. And increasingly recent studies are suggesting that maybe that's diminishing, that we're not developing that uh, part of our – our uh, mind. Uh, another interesting uh, study showed that uh, traditionally uh, London cabbies have to develop something called the knowledge. They have to really learn with a map their way all around. Uh, and studies of their brains find that that portion of the brain is a little larger, a little more active than average. So that uh, definitely is a very real physiological um, change. Now, this idea of going out into the countryside, I think you have to understand one thing about driverless cars. Right now, first of all, there are no driverless cars. You can't buy a driverless cars despite what Tesla or anybody else might say. Right now, part of the reason these cars is, uh, are going towards an Uber model or a ride-handling model is because that's a better business model. But also, because they're too expensive for you to purchase, that means if you do want to go to the national parks or even just get lost in North Dakota, you kind of need to drive. You kind of still need that old school vehicle. And that idea of getting lost, that idea of getting out into the wilderness, that idea of getting uh, somewhere and actually experiencing the travel, uh, I think does get lost when you stop driving. Sure. One other thing. 
when we talk about the car emerging as a technology, um, you saw a lot of big predictions from the folks who, who had uh, been at the forefront of that technology. Most famously was you know Henry Ford and many others suggesting that we have a flying car. Yeah. Uh, those never came. Today, we're talking about driverless cars and how those could reshape society. When you look back at those predictions made about the flying car, what does that history teach us about predictions about innovation and what could it suggest to us about what, the way should we should be thinking about driverless cars and this new innovation coming down the line? I think it's a very good question and uh, I, I find it hard to, to make those predictions. I will um, just tell you a little bit about you know Henry Ford and the flying car and, and the uh, cultural elements of that. It's a very good book, um, a man named Korn, it's called Gospel of Flight and he really explores this. But the idea then was, well, automobiles created what we call sprawl, but they called decentralization. People can now live out in the countryside and make it to the city. And after World War II, and a lot of people had experience with airplanes during World War II, it was the, it was the first air war, um, you could buy at, at Macy's a, a plane. And the idea was that instead of living in you know, Westchester, you could live out in Connecticut and fly to the uh, city. So in a lot of ways, it was just an extension of the automobile. And um, that is not quite what we're hearing about with flying cars from the same people, by the way, who are bringing us um, uh, driverless cars. You know, Uber has a flying car, flying taxi plan. Uh, Brin at, at Google is a big flying car guy. Um, they're talking about, oh, there's too much congestion, there's too much traffic, we'll, you know, we'll do it in a third dimension. Um, so, I, you know, I think uh, those predictions were on the one hand wrong in the sense that the technology didn't develop the way they expected. On the other hand, quite right because indeed sprawl has happened and you can live further and further from uh, where you work and, you know, that obviously hasn't turned out quite the way we wanted either. But in some ways, that dream, that expectation of living further away and traveling in uh, longer distance did happen. So whether it's driverless cars or not, maybe some of these predictions do come true. What cars do you drive? Well, mostly I drive a minivan, 2008 uh, Honda minivan. Not, not that I'm advertising, but it's an Odyssey and it's been great. Uh, I also have a, an old pickup that I bought for a few grand. Uh, which I actually use. My bed actually gets dirty. Uh, it gets dense. Um, so it, I, I like to talk about real pickups. Those are two co two doors, eight-foot beds. That's me. Uh, and then we also have a uh, BMW, 2000 BMW that I kind of got for my wife um, when my daughter started driving. We needed a third one. I don't drive that very much because when I do, I do bad things. Um, so she mostly drives it. Um, but boy, that's still really fun to drive, to shift, to pull that clutch out, to rev as high as you want. Um, so three very different kinds of vehicles. Yeah. And it, that just shows the different experience you have uh, across a different number of cars, which, you know, if we look into the future and autonomy presents itself, you expect to see every car look the same. Some of those individual characteristics, you know, you expect to, to, to be to lose. Uh, another question. What's one road trip that every person should take? <sighs> one road trip. Uh, you know, my my best road trip. Well, we've done three great road trips. But um, I think more than the road trip you take, I would say you should take a road trip with an atlas, put the GPS away, 
Uh, and you should take a road trip either with somebody you want to see if it's going to work out and maybe you'll get married or live together or somebody you already love and really want to um, experience the world with. I think definitely the loop to do is across the south from east to west up California, probably not on the coast, but the Central Valley or even inland, uh, and then back across. Um, uh, you got to go to South Dakota and see the Corn Palace. You got you to gotta see all those places that you would not otherwise see, that you're not going to search Google or TripAdvisor and find. Um, and I think the most important thing about a road trip, whether it's a week or six weeks, is you're building a set of experiences I sometimes joke I have a friend who we don't really like each other, but we have such a deep set of experiences that we love to see each other and be with each other. And that really is the most important thing about a road trip. Yeah, there's something about that experience that is, again, one of those things that what is the world going to be like when those when those go away? When you're going on this road trip, what does Dan Albert like to listen to in his car? On, while he's rolling down the road? Well, you got to listen to the proper car music, right? And so some of that is uh, more of the bluegrass uh, kind of thing and the, the country music, even though I'm not a country music fan, but stuff like that, um, you know, rhythm and blues, things that are, are motivating. There is uh, a wonderful list of car songs, if you want to get a little cliche, trucker songs. You know, you can't listen to them too long. A lot of them are really bad. Um, but you really want something, you know, get your motor running, head on on the highway, looking for adventure, all of those songs that have, you know, a good beat and, and get you moving and keep you moving. And then also, you know, some John Denver, you know, you want to, you want to drive through West Virginia and listen to John Denver, uh, local stuff, local stuff. Yeah. Since we're an investing show, I've got to ask how you invest personally. Uh, do, do you invest personally and how do you think about that, uh, yeah, in your own, in your own personal life? Uh, in terms of investing in general or in terms of cars? However, yeah. Well, yeah. let's talk about investing in general and then okay. uh, to the extent it addresses cars, feel free. Um, so, so there's a wonderful book called Narratives and Numbers. And uh, right, so the, the best way to invest is to look at the story, uh, look at the balance sheet, you know, do your uh, free cash flow analysis, and then try to put those together because – uh, you know, you can look at Uber and you can say, oh, they're a taxi company. OK, let me run the numbers. Or you can say they're a transportation network company and they're going to they're going to take over the world um, and you can run the numbers again. So you have to have both of those. I am much better at the story. I have, a, you know, financial advisor who's excellent and, and quick and he runs the numbers. Um, and so that's the way I tend to invest. And I tend to be, you know, at this stage very much, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a stock picker like I used to be. That said, you know, I feel like it's betting on a horse and I will do that. You know, people are uh, in, in the Tesla world uh, uh, fight about being long or short on Tesla, which is brutal. Um, I'm not invested in Tesla. I kind of have to admit I'm a little pissed off because – I got on an EPO, uh, IPO. Sorry, I got in on the IPO, seventeen bucks. I think it was a share. Went to thirty-five. My advisor guy said, oh, "This is ridiculous. Let's sell it." And I'm like, "Yeah, let's." Well, and so now where were you? We've ended up has bothered me. So I invested in a company called Neo. I'm not recommending it, but uh, you know, it was it was um, advertised as the Tesla of China. I didn't so much buy that, but I did look at who's behind it, Tencent and and so forth, have money in it. Um, 
I did great for a while. It went from, I think, five or six to 17. I was like, yeah, this is great. It's going. And now I think it's at three. Um, but, you know, you invest a small piece of that and you enjoy it. You enjoy it. So that's really what I do. I do the story. I have somebody else who's better with the numbers. And uh, I, I tend to follow my gut on a lot of things. I followed my gut on Amazon and, you know, I'm no genius though. You know, the, the bottom line is everything reverts to the mean. Sure. Uh, last, last question before we go away. When you look at autonomy and this transportation as an industry, it is really, it seems to be evolving so quickly. Um, what are you going to be paying most attention to uh, in the next couple of years when it comes to the evolving mobility? What, what will we be paying most close attention to and looking for? Well, what I'd like to see is really a groundswell of support, and I'm seeing it locally where I live, uh, for things like protected bike lanes, things like daylighting intersections so that pedestrians get a lot more privilege. Um, uh, traffic engineers, uh, planners are, are um, very clear on that and politically uh, seem to be moving forward. Uh, so I am looking for more and more of that. In terms of autonomy, uh, we are starting to see the bloom go off the rose uh, of autonomy. And that is partly because I believe the bloom's gone off the rose of Facebook and, and these others. Um, so I really got, I'm looking at how this conversation is going to change and if it's will, if it will. I'm a little cynical, so I, I worry we're going to keep going down the uh, you know Silicon Valley. We're here to save the world route, but I am very hopeful that traffic calming, uh, more bicyclers, and all of that, more mass transit, if we can ever get around to it, uh, will happen. And I'm, that's what I'm looking at over the next few years. All right, Dan Albert, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show with us. For folks that have been listening, it's Are We There Yet? The American Automobile Past, Present, and Driverless. Always wow. Love you on. Thank you so much for reading it, and thank you for uh, having me on. I loved it, and i uh, love to have you on any anytime uh, you'd like to join us again. Thanks. thanks. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan Albert, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on.